Rosh Hashanah, 5780-2019. Take your son, your only son, the one that you love, Isaac. With these words which we read tomorrow, God demands of Abraham the unthinkable. Take your son, sacrifice him upon an altar. And God does not simply command Abraham to perform the deed. God seems to take some pleasure in emphasizing the cruel nature of the request by referring to Isaac as his one, only, and beloved son. As if Abraham didn't know how painful this would be. And Abraham listens to that voice and prepares to sacrifice Isaac. Abraham, like every parent, knows instinctively that children are our greatest gifts. If, God forbid, a child becomes seriously ill, our world stops turning. If, God forbid, a child is lost, our world crumbles. When a child dies, there are no words of comfort, no gestures of kindness which can reduce the pain. The death of a child puts a hole in a parent's heart, a hole that never fully closes. And yet Abraham does not protest. He remains silent. And it is that silence on which I focus today. This is a sermon which I did not want to write. I'd written a different sermon for this moment. But as events over the summer unfolded, I knew that the sermon I did not want to write was the sermon I needed to deliver. Because when a child dies, we need a message of hope and optimism. We need to be reminded that the world is good, even when forces of evil creep into our purview. We need to be reminded as we usher in a new year that hatred will not prevail, that there is reason to believe that good will triumph over evil, that love will defeat hatred. Devere Sorek was a good kid. He grew up in a home of joy, a home of learning, a Jewish home from which Devere viewed a world larger than the world of Jewish tradition. He was taught to find wisdom in both traditional and non-traditional places. Devere had the look of a religious settler with long earlocks, peyote, a closely cropped haircut and a large kippah. His home was located across the green line in what some call disputed territory. That's where religious settlers, for whom Devere might have been mistaken, live. Settlers, not Devere, are those who unilaterally establish hilltop communities, taking the injunction of settling the land of Israel very literally and, at times, establishing settlements that are illegal, provocative, and unwanted, not just by Palestinians, but by the majority of Israelis as well. Looking at Devere and judging him on the basis of looks, one might assume an attitude of suspicion and distrust of the outside world. 
a hard and inflexible political outlook. One might assume that he hated Arabs and harbored feelings of disdain towards Palestinians. These are mistaken assumptions that many would make. That evening, the 19-year-old was waiting for a bus to return to his yeshiva. Devere was in a special program called Hezder, which enables young men to serve in the army and have time as well for study in yeshiva. He was a brave soldier and a rigorous scholar. But on that evening, Devere stood at the bus stop, returning to the yeshiva not to study, but to meet with his rabbi and to give the rabbi a book. Devere thought his rabbi would better understand him if he knew more about him. And so Devere was returning to the yeshiva with a book in his hand, a novel written by David Grossman. David Grossman is a recognized and relentless voice on the left in Israel. Once a strong supporter of the right, Grossman's political views changed when his own son was killed in the war in Lebanon over a decade ago. Despite his views, which many find objectionable, Grossman won the Pras Yisrael, the Israel Prize for Literature, a few years ago, the highest award one can receive. Devere's father worked in the publishing business, which enabled the father to share all kinds of books with Devere. And so Devere knew of Grossman, and the book had made a deep impression on him. Ezehu chacham halomed mikol adam. He was wise, one who can learn from any person. There's something to learn from all people, from every person. Devere had learned from the books of David Grossman. Devere had also become involved with a group that met every week, a group which was half Jewish and half Palestinian, and they would meet for a couple of hours and discuss their different perspectives of the news, get to know each other as people, as teens. Devere left every stereotype behind and in doing so, saw the world as wide and deep. He learned much from others and had hope for the future. As he stood at the bus stop holding the book by David Grossman, Devere was attacked by two Hamas-inspired terrorists. The two were cousins, I believe. Devere was stabbed multiple times. His lifeless body left in a ditch nearby. When news of Devere's death became public, his Palestinian friends from that group he attended wrote a eulogy for the funeral. They could not attend the funeral, nor could they sign their names to the eulogy for fear of repercussions. But these are their words. Over the past two years, he would regularly attend our meetings, the letter read. During each meeting, we talked about our daily lives and the future we wanted to build together. 
We would meet every week. We were young and optimistic Palestinians and Israelis. We send our condolences to his family, to our friends in his yeshiva. As a group, we condemn such brutal actions, such violence hurts all of us. We build bridges between the people of this land, and we hope that this tragedy will be the last. The assailants were caught. They were interrogated and admitted both their guilt and their rationale. What was their motivation for this horrible crime? What did they hope to accomplish? They did not lie in wait specifically for Devere. They told police that any Jew would have served their purpose. Devere was not targeted because he was wise beyond his years. He was not chosen for his learning, nor for his interest in books nor for his involvement in a mixed group, Jews and Palestinians, which met every two weeks. He was a Jew. That was all the motivation that was needed. It was the same motivation which killed Rina Schnurb a couple of weeks later. Rina was hiking near her home with her father and brother when a remotely controlled bomb was thrown at Rena and her father and her brother. Rena, closest to the explosion, absorbed the bulk of the flying shrapnel, saving the lives of her father and brother, who were seriously injured. They missed the funeral for Rena because they were still being treated at the hospital. I could tell you a bit more about Rena too. Suffice to say, the uniqueness of her story, her outlook, her skills and interests help us to understand the magnitude of the loss. When the perpetrators were found, they too acknowledged that their goal was not specifically to kill Rena. Their goal was to kill any Jew like the murder of, murderers of Devere. Which Jew made no difference? And to add to this horror was Ismail Haniyeh, the leader of Hamas. Haniyeh spoke of these two terrorists who successfully killed a 17-year-old girl in glowing terms, praising what they had done. Both these terrorists and those who killed Devere were praised by their leaders. He called the murder of un suspecting and unarmed teenagers, heroic. I think that Rena and Devere were easy targets. They were not fearful of the world. They didn't live in hiding, fearing close proximity to Arab villages. Per perhaps they thought that if you're good and you bring goodness into the world, you spread light in the world, and you live the way you think God wants you to live, that you'll be protected but that line of thinking is like thinking that the bull won't charge because you're a vegetarian. I believe that goodness can prevail. But given means and opportunity, hatred will surely find a way to make itself known, seen, and felt. 
to defeat hate, we must understand how hatred enters the world. Hatred enters when we generalize about a group of people collectively without regard for differences between individuals, without regarding them as individuals. If one speaks of Jews as monkeys, as does Nation of Islam leader Louis Farrakhan, hate enters there. If one speaks of Mexicans as being criminals and rapists, hate enters there. If one sees African Americans as violent people or drug dealers, if a kid is wearing a hoodie or jeans with a waistband worn only inches from one's knees, if one sees him as dangerous, one succumbs to the inclination of hate. One escorts hate into the world. From these examples and others, I'm convinced that we don't need to teach people how to hate. From everything I see, one does not need training to hate. One needs, one needs training to learn how not to hate. Hating you see is easy when skin tone is different, when accents are different, when a person has physical anomalies. We judge them on the basis of that which makes them different. This is public knowledge and accepted practice here, right here in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. If you're buying a cheesesteak, which I have never done, in South Philadelphia, you can see a sign above the window where the or food orders are taken. It reads, English only. You must speak like me. This is America. We don't speak that language in America. I look the way you should look. Your skin color, your clothes are all wrong. You should look like me and talk like me. I can know very quickly, just by looking, whether you are one of us or one of them. And if you possess a disability, there is something wrong with you and others like you. And if you love someone of the same gender or a different gender or of no gender, if your loving that person makes me uncomfortable, you're wrong to love that person. There's a story of a great rabbi, Rabbi Joshua, who was purported to be the greatest teacher and scholar of his day. He was revered for his piety, respected for his wisdom, and appreciated for his brilliant rhetoric. His fame grew geographically as he went from city to city teaching, speaking. Unfortunately, however, Rabbi Joshua was a particularly ugly person Perhaps he had some congenital deformities. And once as he was walking from town to town, a man traveling in a carriage passed the rabbi walking. He ordered his driver to stop to give the walker a ride into the city. He was about to invite the poor man who was walking to ride with him but when the man in the carriage saw him, he shrieked and said, you are the ugliest person I've ever seen. You should not walk by day, lest 
you frighten others with your appearance. And with that, the carriage went on its way. When the rabbi reached the town, he recognized immediately. He was recognized immediately and take, taken to the inn. He was given the best room, treated to a wonderful meal, and at the end of the meal, the visiting rabbi went to teach in the Beit Midrash. The room was packed, and among the crowd was the man from the carriage who had passed the rabbi along the way. After the brilliant lecture, the rabbi was ready to retire for the evening when the man from the carriage ran to him and said, Rabbi, I am so, so sorry for speaking to you as I did. I didn't know who you were. Can you forgive me? The rabbi said, I cannot. Rabbi, I beg you, please forgive me. I am so sorry, said Rabbi Joshua, but I cannot. Groveling on the floor with his head down, the man cried, Rabbi, I shall not move from this spot unless you forgive me. The rabbi turned and went to his room for the evening. When he woke the next morning, he found the man in the same place as he was the night before. Rabbi, I implore you, forgive me. Rabbi Joshua looked down and said, I cannot forgive you because you did not insult me. I'm not responsible for my looks. It is God who made me this way. Ask your forgiveness from God. This is how hate begins, through judgmentalism, through parochialism, by regarding uniqueness as an aberration, personal preference as illegitimate, and individuality as a threat to the rest. Rabbi Joshua pushes, pushes this point even further. We are who we are, he says in effect. In Hebrew, kach nivreti. This is how God made me. And so, to this story, I would add my own question. Is it not possible that God made each of us different in order for us to confront and overcome our tendencies to hate? We open the door to hate when we judge another person, not by their deeds and their choices, but by who they are and what they are and how they look or what they wear. Our sages speak of the cataclysmic event of the destruction of the second temple in Jerusalem in the year 70. That would be the most painful and demoralizing event ever to befall the Jewish community. These sages were able to justify the destruction of the first temple because of the rampant corrupt corruption which permeated the Jewish community and the unwillingness to accept and follow God's rules. But the destruction of the second temple occurred when the community was compliant with Jewish law, careful in many observances, and resistant to the outside forces that threaten Judaism. 
Why then did God allow the Romans to destroy the temple? The answer given, sinat chinam, baseless hatred. Baseless hatred. Sinat chinam means hating people for no good reason. Gratuitous hatred. Today, many people try to explain hatred, the hatred that resides in our society and in our world, as being rooted in sinat chinam. But the problem has been and remains that sinat chinam doesn't really exist. Throughout the history of the world, there have never been any people who would admit their guilt and acknowledge that they hated for no reason. Sinat chinam. Yes, others are guilty of sinat chinam. Yes, the temple may have been destroyed because of this terrible sin, but that sin is not applicable to me. Yes, I hate that person, but my hatred is not baseless. I have some very good reasons to hate. Other people are guilty of baseless hatred, but... My hatred is not baseless, it's well-founded. Do you know what he did to me? And this is what makes hate particularly insidious. No one hates, no one who hates thinks that they have no reason to hate. No anti-Semitism, no anti-Semite believes that he, his hatred of Jews is not justified. All hatred is rationalized, legitimized, validated. We are innocent. They are guilty. One must wonder if those who want to block immigrants from our country are doing so because they honestly believe that there is, there is among them a preponderance of criminals, thieves, drug dealers, and rapists. One cannot help but wonder if the aggressive and restrictive policy toward immigration from Mexico is a reflection of not wanting them, not because they're criminals, but because they are Mexican. Today in our country, we sense it in the language of hate, which has become tolerated, language which has reinforced and validated hatred in this country and in other countries, and not wanting to be considered intolerant, we endure the most hateful language and do not respond. In our silence, those who hate find validation, particularly on college campuses. With the beginning of the new semester at colleges and universities across this land, the most recent surveys confirm that the start of the academic year coincides with increased levels of anti-Zionism and intimidation of Jews on campus. Here is but one example. Just this week, the president of Malaysia in New York, was in New York City for meetings at the UN. He was invited to speak while in New York at Columbia University. In response to a question, he launched into a lengthy anti-Semitic screed 
in which he proclaimed that the Holocaust never happened. Yes, there were some who were killed, but there's no way that number is anywhere near six million. The Holocaust was invented, he proclaimed, in order to justify its, Israel's aggression against Muslims. When one student objected, the president of Malaysia responded by saying that freedom of speech allows him to say what he wants to say, even if you consider it anti-Semitic. Equally as shopping is the fact that at Columbia, there are over 10,000 Jews. With the exception of the one comment challenging the president, the comments of the president of Malaysia were allowed to stand unchallenged. Also, just this week was the report from Dutch, from Dutch radio of an eight-minute rant about money-grubbing Jews who need to be annihilated. One wonders why the station allowed the rant to continue unless, of course, anti-Semitism is considered a legitimate position. Suffice to say that neither time nor geography have been moderating factors in the hatred of Jews. Hatred, we know, is proudly displayed in the radical right when neo-Nazis, emboldened by the president, when he declared that among those in Charlottesville are some very good people, it comes as well from radicals on the left who feel safe calling for moral people to rise up against Jews and or Israel to support boycotts, divest, and impose. impose economic sanctions aimed at eradication of the Jewish state. Whether on the right or the left, it was reported last week that more than half of the hate crimes perpetrated in New York City were perpetrated against Jews and Jewish property. My friends, this is not a sermon I wanted to give. Perhaps I avoided it because of the discomfort of speaking of hatred and unkindness on a joyous holiday. Perhaps I was reluctant to speak because I did not want to give this precious time to such heinous, hatred, hateful, murderous acts as those which took the lives of Devere and Rena from this world acts of desecration and violence against two young teens. But on this holy day, I felt no choice but to speak of the sanctity of life, a, a value which stands in direct opposition to hatred. This is the first and the most important message of the world. Et chatotai animas kir hayom. Today I acknowledge and confess my own sins. I believe that I've been less strident and less vocal than necessary in my opposition to a number of issues which have created stains on the fabric of American society. 
It isn't any single issue or policy which I should have opposed. It's an atmosphere in this country, an atmosphere which provides a more comfortable place for hate to reside. Whether speaking of immigration, the environment, or partisan politics, all have been places in which hate has now found safe haven. And that must be condemned strongly because once hate takes root, once hate takes root, that hate grows from all sides. I need to do better. We cannot directly prevent hate from entering the world, but we can be in the forefront of those saying no. We can and must be the ones with the courage to speak up. We must never be silent in the presence of hate, and we must never be afraid to support that which is right, that which is moral and just, and that which reflects the ideals and the values of the Jewish people. In short, if there's anything to be learned from history, it is that our expressions of observances of Jude and observances of Judaism are not the cause of anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism will be there no matter what. Moreover, any attempt to hide our Judaism is a form of compliance or cooperation with those who hate us. In this world, given all we have suffered through for, suffered through for thousands of years, those days are over. We must never shy away from our Judaism. We must never be embarrassed to be Jewish. And we must never be afraid that because, be, never be afraid because we are Jewish. Those days are gone. Been there. Done that. Today we are mindful of the victims and their families of the long string of murderous attacks on schools, at offices, nightclubs, and warehouses. And we continue to mourn and express solidarity with Eitz Chaim congregation in Pittsburgh, which will never shake its association with the 11 who were murdered exactly 11 months ago. And for your information, parenthetically, I add that we will be reciting a special prayer on Yom Kippur during the Martyrology dedicated to the memories of the victims of the Pittsburgh Massacre. The shadow cast upon all synagogues and upon all Jews is a reminder that there remains in this world, in this country, and in this state, those who are willing to forfeit their own lives for the higher purpose of killing Jews. This should be for us all an ongoing reminder of the extent to which haters will go in order to express their angry and bigoted intentions. When Abraham was ready to sacrifice Isaac, Abraham heard God's voice once again. This time that voice said, do not hurt the boy. Don't lay a hand on him. At that moment, Abraham understood what each of us must appreciate today. There are lots of voices calling to us to do, to believe, to act, and all claim to be God's voice. The question is not simply which is God's voice. The question is to which voice shall we listen? 
When we hear more than one voice claiming to be God's voice, to which do we listen? Are we listening to the voices which promote anger and violence? I hope not. We must listen for a different voice, a voice imploring us to replace treachery with truth, hatred with humanity, and replace the senseless and hateful killings with acts of kindness. How does one choose? I will tell you. Outside of certain wars, God never commands us to do violence or harm another human being. God does not want us to hate. And if you hear a voice urging you toward violence, that is not God's voice. I pray that this will be a year of less hatred and less killing and more life, a year filled with joy, a year of health, and a year filled with love. May this be a year in which we hear and follow voices which are identified by their compassion, by their humanity. May we hear voices which call upon us to adhere to the path which lead us and this world to peace.